Welcome to the seventh episode of Reimagining Defence, brought to you by Lieutenant Colonel Henry Willey and myself, Flight Lieutenant James Coote. The thoughts are our own and do not represent the MOD. This podcast is for people who want to become bilingual in the languages of defence and technology. Through examining how exponential technologies are fundamentally disrupting organisations worldwide, we explore how we might harness them to reimagine defence. In this, the seventh and final episode of the Reimagining Defence podcast, we're going to summarise the series and overlay one final thought. Throughout this series, we've focused on how computing and its exponential development are revolutionising every industry, including defence. We've talked about how the world is donning an electric skin, the Internet of Things, and how the big data that results from breaking down the barriers between the online and offline world can be fed into the cloud. We've explored how machine learning can process this vast quantity of data in the cloud and provide us with previously unimaginable opportunities for analysis, intelligence and automation anytime and accessible anywhere. In everyday situations such as googling a recipe to redefining traditional industries such as farming. What is clear is that these gains all converge on computing. The speed of data processing its analysis and automation, eventually it's all about computing. So what if we throw a spanner in the works and say that soon, for people who have mastered this digital ecosystem, they're going to be able to plug in quantum computing, computers that work fundamentally different to the ones that sit on our desks and in our pockets, and that for certain tasks, these quantum computers are going to be exponentially more powerful than conventional computers. So now we've set that context, let's take a simplified view of what quantum computing is by using the metaphor of human language. The average native English speaker has a vocabulary of over 20,000 words formed by combinations of the 26 letters of the alphabet. But imagine if your vocabulary could only be formed of two characters. It would be kind of limiting, right? Well, that's how computers work. They only have a vocabulary of two characters, 0 and 1, and every piece of data they store and every function they perform is encoded in zeros and ones, commonly referred to as bits. For example, the letter A is encoded in 8 bits as 0, 1, 5 zeros and a 1. Now, that is limiting, especially once you start trying to compute complex natural phenomena, for example, like perhaps simulating how two chemicals react or which of two countries might win a war. Unfortunately, the number of zeros and ones required to compute this accurately becomes almost impossibly unwieldy. Enter quantum computing. Without going into too much complexity, a quantum computer encodes data in zeros, ones, or an intermediate state. They're not called bits now, but quantum bits, or qubits for short. That may not sound like a big step forward, but consider that, due to a doubling of the number of possibilities that can be encoded with each character of code, this means that in the same number of bits required to code the letter A, which was 8, as you'll remember, you can encode 256 times the quantity of information in 8 qubits. If that sounds more impressive, then imagine what happens when you have a page of bits, usually 3,000 characters. A page of qubits 
could encode 2 to the power of 3,000 times as much information as a page of bits. And now consider that an iPhone doesn't have a page of code, it has 10 million lines of code. So the building blocks of quantum computing can encode vast amounts more data and therefore solve problems of incredible complexity. It's not easy though. A modern day computer can process many million bits per second in its processor and hardly makes a mistake. Quantum computers are nowhere near this yet. The most physical representations of qubits that have been made to work in a quantum computer so far is 54. Why? Well, keeping a quantum computer working and working consistently is extremely difficult. A few strategies are currently being developed, but with some requiring the qubits to be kept at minus 273 Celsius, they're not going to be making it onto your office desk anytime soon. We'd love to be able to give you some examples of where quantum computers are being used at the moment, but truthfully, despite the hype, they're not quite there yet and are probably 10 to 15 years away from mainstream use. They're mainly restricted at the moment to proving themselves in the academic coliseum. Here, two big tech heavyweights, Google and IBM, are locked in a battle over a claim made by Google's quantum computing team last year that they have achieved what is grandiosely referred to as quantum supremacy. Basically, doing a seriously complex computing task in seconds on their quantum computer that they claim would have taken millennia for the most powerful supercomputer. IBM disagree, saying that their fastest supercomputer could do it in a couple of days but with vastly superior accuracy. We won't delve into siding with either tech giant here, but suffice to say, quantum computing is showing early promise but is mainly confined to solving academic challenges rather than real-world ones at the moment. What is atypical though, and perhaps illustrative of the seismic effects quantum computing is anticipated to have on the technology industry, is how quickly quantum computing has made it out there into the open. IBM, Microsoft and Rigetti, amongst many others, are already making their quantum computers available through the cloud for people like you or I to run little programs on for free. This again highlights the accessibility the cloud gives to anyone wanting to develop cutting-edge software with cutting-edge infrastructure. As far as I'm aware, you or I have equal access to quantum computing sat right here in your study through a commercial cloud provider like the ones mentioned than most other militaries do in the world. Making these incredible computers available and accessible to the masses often referred to as good user experience, or UX for short, is a smart and proven tactic, perhaps most vividly illustrated by the past experiences with the internet. When the internet first came about, creating and accessing a website was extremely difficult for users. The UX was, was rubbish. That was until Mark Anderson came along and created the first user-friendly internet browser called Mosaic, which made internet access and development far more accessible. When it launched, the internet had 26 websites, and that grew to millions in a matter of years. And now your grandma could launch her own website quite, quite comfortably. Good UX democratised this technology. Quantum computing companies are trying to do the same. And as a military, we should embrace the opportunity this enables for our operators and coders 
and learn lessons about UX, that the fact that it's usually the key turbocharger to uptake of technologies. But also be very wary that the barriers to entry for our adversities due to this good UX are exceedingly low. So having skipped through the examples section quite quickly, which is necessarily scant, we're going to focus on what quantum computing might unlock for us in the future, focusing in on material science first of all. Material science is the discipline of designing and discovering new materials, and may sound dull, but it's truly foundational to tech. Consider that, with the materials available in the 1980s, today's smartphone would have cost something like $110 million, being 14 metres tall and require about 200 kilowatts of energy, according to the CTO of Applied Materials, Omkaram Nalamusu. Fast forwarding to today, amongst many other things, perhaps most importantly, it's holding back green energy. The efficiency of our solar panels is restricted to a meagre 20%, and the effectiveness of our batteries to store this energy for when we need it is pretty poor too. So why is quantum computing going to revolutionise material science? Well, to answer this, let's take a brief history tour through material science. Pre-computers, it was essentially a game of trial and error. Thomas Edison is perhaps the most famous example, trying thousands of different compounds, then finally happening across the carbonised cotton filament to create a functioning light bulb. The inefficiency of this process must have been soul-destroying and led him to hatch the phrase, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Even when computer simulation of new materials did come along, it was not initially a huge amount better because the complexity that needs to be simulated in material science is absolutely massive. Let's consider this with a really simple example of creating a seating plan for a table at a wedding, which roughly equates to working out how some chemicals might go together perhaps in a very simplified form. Let's say you have 10 guests per table, and create a computer program to simulate different seating arrangements to find the best plan. There are 3.6 million different ways to sit just 10 people around a table, all of which will lead to different interactions and different enjoyment outcomes of the wedding. Your computer program is going to take a while to compute that. Now, of course, that's an extremely simple example. Now, imagine if we're designing a new cancer drug, for example which is a protein composed of a hundred amino acid building blocks stuck together. Now there are 10 times the number of actors at your wedding table, and the precise shape of the resulting protein has a massive impact on its function. There are simply trillions and trillions more possible combinations to consider. Oh, and the consequence of getting it wrong may be someone's life. This is where the extra order of magnitude of computing power of a quantum computer holds the key and combined with machine learning, allows modelling of these extremely complex structures. So what will this mean for defence? Most obviously, the strongest use case defence will not be simulating materials, even though finding materials to create ultralight body armour and invisibility cloaks have been touted. It might instead be simulation. As in chess, the player who can think the furthest ahead and analyse the widest variety of possible moves is often the winner, as they're able to anticipate their adversary's most likely moves and outmaneuver them. As our adversaries have diversified in the domains in which they operate, and with recent asymmetric conflicts meaning adversaries' actions often seem unpredictable, so simulating conflicts with them has become more complex too. 
When an infantry commander is closing in on an enemy stronghold, are they truly able to evaluate all of the domains of warfare? To simulate the true variety of threats they face across the entire electromagnetic and physical spectrum? Of course not. And this is where simulation, fed by the multitude of data scraped from the internet, sensors, troops on the ground, and other intelligence sources, may become invaluable to allow them to take one step closer to robustly stress-testing their thinking and achieving checkmate. We started to explore this in episode 5 on AI, but acknowledged that the complexity increases as you move from single tasks to tactical and then to strategic operations, becoming exceedingly difficult for AI and classical computers, at least in 2020. Quantum computing combined with AI may, in the next decade or two, have a big role to play in these increasingly complex simulations for defence. A second area for defence to consider will be the security of our increasingly digitalised operations. Quantum computing will, in years to come, be able to decrypt the RSA keys that encrypt most of the World Wide Web. This won't be the only security protocol that they're able to unlock either. Suffice to say that whichever military harnesses the power of quantum computing first will likely gain a massive stronghold in information security and offensive information operations. Interestingly, as it is highly unlikely to be a military that becomes the world leader in quantum computing, but rather one of the big tech companies like Microsoft, Google or Amazon, choosing the right cloud providers with strong quantum computing aspirations could be a critical foundation for our future information security and info ops. And so here we end our series. We hope it's provided a thought-provoking journey through how technology is revolutionising other industries and how it might allow us to reimagine defence. If we had to highlight three takeaways, we'd choose these. First, an increasingly digital future of defence is inevitable. Every delay to seizing it sees the gap to the frontrunners grow exponentially wider. Secondly, that technologies such as AI, automation and IoT are not plug-and-play capabilities. They only work when built upon foundations of accessible cloud computing combined with high-quality and significant quantities of data. The digital future of defence will need to be built on sound digital infrastructure. Thirdly, we anticipate that every modern soldier, sailor, airman and civil servant will need to be bilingual in the languages of technology and defence to seize this opportunity. As Henry quoted John Boyd in the first episode, people, ideas, technology, in that order. Our ability to protect our people, our interests and our values will be increasingly dependent on our people's ability to exploit the exponential technologies explored in this series. We hope you enjoyed this episode, narrated and written by myself, James Coote, and edited by Lieutenant Colonel Henry Willey. We'd like to thank the AADP, the Army's Advanced Development Programme, and the RAF Medical Services for allowing us the journalistic freedom to create this podcast. The thoughts are our own and do not represent the MOD or these organisations. If you want to delve deeper, you can access the script and references for this podcast by sending us a blank email with your rating of the podcast in the subject line from 0 to 10 to redefpod at gmail.com 
or by checking out our Twitter at ReadFPod. Just to be clear, ReadFPod is R-E-D-E-F-P-O-D. For those who want to learn how to code, apply data science, or learn agile project management techniques, check out the J-Hub coding scheme, where you'll get paid up to £500 for learning these skills and have your achievement logged on JPA. Just search J-Hub Coding Scheme on DefNet. Finally, if this podcast has sparked any ideas for innovative capability that you want to get into the hands of military users, you can submit your ideas via the new GEMS platform found at def-ideas.wazoku.com. Alternatively, reach out directly to DARE for the Navy, Aerial for the Army, RCA for the RAF, or J-Hub for STRATCOM, all found by a quick search on DefNet. If you've enjoyed this series, we'd be delighted if you'd share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. Thank you.